Welcome to Interscription. To the surprise and delight of all, or at least your humble podcast hosts, we have arrived at a full year of weekly podcasts. Rich and I reflect on the journey thus far and the road not yet traveled. We also chat on a couple of Oscar contenders, a masterful McAvoy performance, and sex-crazed Russian refrigerators. Thanks for staying on this road with us all year long. So we are talking about um, learned helplessness today on the pod. Uh, I decided that we really had to start recording as soon as you described uh, modern management is dealing with people who just sit down on the floor with a shitty diaper and ask you to fix it. Yes, Um, that is. Because that is, uh, because very much like that, our podcast is one year old today and our podcast gets to have poopy diapers. It does. It's allowed to do that. And yet our podcast doesn't have that. And why, you might ask, gentle listener, it's because we have in fact launched our website and our social media presence. That is exactly right. That is why. So we are mature. We are of legal drinking age style podcast. Like we're like all out there, right? Like we, you know, like we can buy cigarettes, we can... Uh, what are other adult things that happen besides drinking and cigarettes that, that says an awful lot can, about what I think? You can rent a car. We could rent a car. That's, yes, that's true. Our podcast has a credit card on file. So, I mean, we, we Gambling can, in certain states. Certain states we can gamble. Okay. Voting, okay. I think we've got voting. Voting. Um, okay. Okay. And um, um, having a full Facebook account. Having a full Facebook account. And those are all very adulty things. That last one, the full Facebook account, I've seen a couple Facebook accounts by adults. That's right. Don't really feel particularly mature sometimes. No. So maybe not that one. No, maybe, then, but, then, uh, then let me adjust. We can shake our fists in rage at those millennials on our Facebook accounts. That's it. Scream like anime characters. Ah, we can do that. That's that's what we're that's able it. to do. Yeah, yes, I mean, it's, it's, great. it's crazy. I remember like half a year ago or more than you said maybe your stepbrother or somebody else you were talking to said something about 20 episodes that like, if you get to 20 episodes, you've made it. Yes. And, yes. you know, I've reflected week after week, uh, some weeks uh, just before we came on the air, you know, I was just kind of bloodletting a little bit about my day job and specifically management, trying to transform the org and make things run smoother for everybody here and kind of pull together towards our goals. And it was just, um, it's been a slog of a day, you know, I'm using caffeine and, um, some amphetamines to get through, but you know, there are weeks that we show up to do this pod and it's hard. It's, it's fucking hard. We both have kids. We've got responsibilities with a capital R. We have things that need to be done and that are competing for our time, but Every week we have managed with few exceptions and no exceptions to putting on a podcast to come here and do the thing and to do the work. And I think it's not about 20 episodes. I think it's probably a rule of thumb that if you can get to 20 episodes, if you can do a thing, you know, 20 weeks in a row, you can probably do it 50 weeks in a row because at that point you've realized that it's a habit, you know, it's not something you're trying out. And I think that's, it's been a big part of the podcast journey for me with you is all of the places in our lives where we've kind of floated by on our, frankly, amazing charm. Amazing charm. Charm that is amazing. That is correct. Uh, 
very seldomly has it been in something that we can stand back and say, we've built through habit. You know, I think martial arts for you, specifically training in music and getting through school for music for me. But even in there, like sometimes I, in college, you know, when I should have been practicing 12 hours a day, like some of my peers, I was checking out girls. I was uh, going to cool places. You know, I was 19 years old in the city and, you know, fuck it, man. Like I was having fun. And so like that comes back to that idea of that deliberate practice, uh, having something that you can look back on and say, I did this, Uh, you know, I carved a groove into the channel of my life. And in doing so, much like a valley or I don't know, we don't have water or a burning forest. A burning forest. Perhaps is more timely. Like we've altered. I see that you extrapolated a... God, do we have to already talk oh. about that? Did, like, <laughs> just, uh, it's like oh, a, we will uh, have to. We will record have to. scratch cause... sound of the worst kind. <laughs> just, <laughs> whew, uh, yes. you know, I was getting all deep and meditative, and the, now it's gone. It's, it's dead. Gone. It's ruined. And I just um, see the problem is that the forests are burning in the Catskills and the Poconos and the Adirondacks and over in um, Israel and down in Florida. And, you know, if we don't stop the climate increase by two degrees, I think my mom's going to die. I'm surprised that we were even able to get through 52 weeks because there's no breathable air anymore. And, uh, a great many other things that, uh, God, fuck that show. That was a bad show. Uh, we will talk about that when we get to watching and playing. I'm sorry to derail yep. that. That was a record scratch, but you're right. The Valley that we've cut, let, I'm has, picking has, it back up. I'm passing you the ball back. Go, go, go. By building the habit has altered the course of our lives. Yes. We've become yes. from people who did not podcast into podcasters, into that being part of an identity because we've just done it. You know, we just, went back to the woodshed day after day, week after week, and did it even when we were broken and exhausted and ready to wait for climate change to burn my building to the ground. That's right. We And, and so we did. I, I will give a, an anecdote that's exactly about an hour old, not even an hour old, 45 minutes old. Um, I was just a beautiful day up here in Northeastern PA and uh, a little cloudy outside, I'd say. But other than that, temp- temperatures about as warm as it's been all year uh, so far. And um, because of climate change. And, uh, so, um, my, uh, little guy was at karate and it's literally a couple blocks up, you know, that you've seen it already. And, uh, so wanted to get him over there on time. And so dropped him off and, uh, I still hadn't fully, uh, gotten myself primped for the day with, you know, toothpaste and deodorant and all those kinds of things. It's been a block rocker of a day for myself with a whole bunch of, lovely IT things that uh, uh, didn't work so good today. And uh, so moving through that, um, so I, instead of making him late and me pulling myself together, I drove him down the street real quick, dropped him off so he could get into class, came back here and uh, got myself together and uh, then actually walked um, to to back to the, the studio to go pick him up. And uh, so we walked back afterwards um, after class was over and we walked into the house and my youngest of eight years old turns to me and he said, uh, Hey dad, can I get a snack? And I said, sure. Yeah. Go ahead and grab a snack real quick. And, uh, so he said, okay, are you doing your podcast tonight? And when he said that, 
And I'm sure that he must have said that before today. I'm sure that happened. I'm sure my oldest also said it at some point. Um, but that was that. That's that valley, right? Like that's yep. the that's the it is now of such momentum that, you know, the actual household is on notice. And I didn't have to say, hey, just so you know, our podcast is tonight. And, you know, and I've said that a whole bunch of times, you know, so that everybody's nice and quiet when we're recording and all that. Um, but uh, it's there. That valley is there. That we have, the channel has been routed into the wood and it is, it is uh, indelibly marked in the path of our life the, of the previous year, of the previous 52 weeks. Right. We uh, published on April Fools of last year. Uh, and uh, here we are about to approach April Fools of this year. 52 episodes in. I am, uh, I am proud of us for that. I am proud of us for the woodshed of it all. Yes, that's, uh, that's that. I, I know uh, for my own uh, self, uh, particularly, I, I know uh, working an awful lot of, uh, about trying to be a podcaster and what that means. And I'm sure both of us have had our individual and collective journeys on that. But um, I'm super, super happy uh, with that. Um, so I, I figured we've been kind of bantering. Bandying, yes, bandying. I yes, think is how, we, how one we says it. Bandy about, yes. We bandy about. We have been bandying about uh, with regards to our website uh, launch, um, uh, as we've gotten up to the one year mark. So finally sat down and did the uh, unenviable and uh, grueling, um, not as grueling as it could be, but grueling nonetheless. Uh, work of uh, of website uh, creation. Um, so we have the framework of that there. Um, apologize in advance to everybody who goes there, and um, you know, over the next week or two, we're probably going to be sprucing it up and adding bits to it and making it a bit more. Uh, polished, but much like our podcast where we just turned the mics on and started recording a year ago um, and did so faithfully every week, you know, I don't think that this is any different. This is, uh, you you brought up a great um, thing that I hadn't been as familiar with of building out in the open um, that you talked about when I went and looked back at some of our notes in our first couple episodes. And I, I think that the website has to be that. I think our social media has to be that. I think all of it has to be that. We, we are not solely doing this. You're right. We have kids, family, friends, responsibilities, full-time jobs with a capital F. Um, and, uh, so, um, all those things mean that, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna make this happen and make it grow and make it, uh, make it bigger. But, uh, yes, it's been a, it's been an incredible year. I would not have wanted to do this without you. And I'm looking forward to a whole bunch more episodes after today. Yeah, it's going to be incredible. And the nice thing about building in the open any episode that you tune into is always going to be our best episode. And I think that's probably leveled out over time as we've gotten our sea legs under us and learned a little bit more on how to run an episode, what our banter looks like, how to mute our coughs and, you know, all of that fun stuff. And the same is going to be true of our website, social media, the other things that we're doing. Uh, and I'm really interested to see what, other people want from it, uh, you know, and I, I want that that feedback loop. Uh, I want to hear and understand. You know, I think we had this conversation when we were digging into launching the website, and one of the reasons we've kind of held off on it is this is a podcast, and when we think about other podcasts that we really care about, they're not really also websites. Uh, you know, the websites may promote the podcast, but they might have other properties that do other things, and so we're sort of blazing our own trail, only being able to serve one master and sort of bringing these things together and serving a common goal. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I've actually got it up. And I mean, you 
got the logo up, you got some colors in, threw a theme on. And so I'm grateful for that. I think you would probably agree with me. As of right this second, the bar can't be much lower. There's yes. exactly one post. It is the Hello World WordPress post that comes out of the gate. Yep. Um, we know it is running PHP 8, and that is about the only thing that we can say for sure today. Yes, yes. We are current on all the technologies, MySQL, PHP, all that stuff. I goosed us to where we needed to be, freshest version of WordPress, locked it. it all up real nice. So we are um, ready to start. Yeah, and I, I um, and outside of the technical weeds of that, yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely be, you know, it is, uh, it is <laughs> let's call it a clean room right now. There's not a whole lot That's to right. be done just there. But, um, you know, we, you and I have talked offline and, and, you know, as we fully establish those things, I think this is going to be a great stop um, for, um, for folks to kind of visit as like another leg to, you know, the, the discussion, the dialogue we want to have with everybody. Um, and with the dialogue meaning too, and having not just you and I, but us and our audience, um, I'd really like to see that, that feedback loop you mentioned where we get to hear from people. What do they want us to talk about? What do they think we would be uh, good talking about? What are we not very good talking about? You know, what are, there might be some things that we're just rather boring in, or we go on too long about. I, personally can point to several times where I got caught on a topic and went way too deep um, as we learned how to podcast. And um, we're still working through that. We're, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll do that uh, poorly again, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that's a good feedback loop. I want to, um, I want to engage more. And uh, um, another thing I think we, what, that hopefully we'll have with our, our website is, is that, and you had mentioned this, I think both on air and off air, but the idea that we can, uh, speak to events between podcasts, right? Because sometimes yep. we'll post on a, uh, we'll record on a Wednesday night or a Thursday day, and then something literally after recording within an hour's time, some big news story will come up. And by the following week, we may talk about it, we may not, but it may be cold, right? Like it may not be something we really want to get into. Um, so uh, the 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 website will allow us to kind of have that little bit of a bridge where we get to, you know, type a couple things, put a couple things up and, uh, you know, enjoy talking about that. So anyway, um, that, that's uh, that's where I, I, I have uh, I've been. You know, I've been kind of thinking about where we've been and where we're going. Um, and uh, thanks yeah. everybody. Really, like that's a, that's a big deal. I, I uh, have recorded a lot of the intros as we've gone, and I say thanks for staying on this road with us every week. And uh, um, and I I mean that <laughs> this is a road, and it's uh, not over, not by a long shot. And, uh, I am very appreciative to everybody who's listened. I think that's uh, terrific. Um, we'll, uh, we're looking forward to a, a whole lot more in the next year. So, uh, looking forward to sharing that too. Yeah, it, it'll be killer. Um, but <clears throat> I guess I've got to hit this in the top because you brought it up, uh, not killer fucking extrapolations. Like I just, I do <laughs> not want this after a break. I do not want nope. to nope. spend additional time on it. Uh, you know, to, avoid any suspense i loved it i thought it was just fantastic <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i really wanted you to be able to finish that joke but holy shit <laughs> yeah um and that's that's all i've got so yeah. we're not going to talk about it again yeah, that's uh, for for everybody. Uh, we we put together a little document, you know, each week about uh, topics, and we kind of break it up into sections. We have a little intro section, and then the next thing we we put down is what we've been playing slash watching. And so it's very important that you put extrapolation before that because we are never watching that 
piece of shit. Uh, so uh, if we just go ahead and talk about it during the intro, we don't have to talk about it during that because it's um, absolutely the worst direct that's ever been filmed. And uh, anybody who watches it uh, is not as smart as me. So I, I would, I'm going to go ahead and challenge anyone who decides that that's anything other than uh, complete garbage and a waste of time. Yeah. So um, anyway, after I finished watching the last episode of it, I... <laughs> no, I, I haven't yeah. been back. I, I think Servant uh, exercised that demon for me, perhaps. Oh, um, God. Maybe. Uh, I still watch some very bad things and mm-hmm. am fully prepared to talk about my progress in season two of Shadow and Bone. So, Oh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. There's plenty of not very good shows that I spend an inordinate amount of time with. I don't know that that's going to be one of them. And if you go on Apple Plus and go to click on that show, Ted Lasso's there like right before it. So it's going to be like yeah. hard to jump over the Ted Lasso to get there. I mean, really for anything, right? Like Ted Lasso's appointment viewing almost. And, you know, and they're, and I mean, Apple TV Plus for its, credit has had such amazing shows, right? Like how do you, how do you get to the, how do you reach from the top of the barrel to the bottom in one, one click? That's uh that's not, that's not fair to anybody. Yeah. Uh, 48% on Rotten Tomatoes, which means a lot of people just haven't watched it. Yep. And um, yeah, so I was actually, yeah. So C is 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes is a tough place. It, it's hard to get good what ratings was, there. What was Servant? Ooh. Oh, so so you actually want like a control to this? I do. Servant TV series, ninety-one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. All right, so so, the, so we close just... the tab on your browser. <laughs> <laughs> like that doesn't even mean anything. Oh then. my god, I I love that. I so Rotten Tomatoes is a random number generator, and if you ever need a really good crypto key, just type in some shows, and you will get some good randos. Uh, wow. That's it. How about, uh, it. okay, so that's 91%. Mm. Shall I click on severance? Let's do it. How? Severance, 97%. So 6% better than servant. Yeah, that's that's science. <laughs> uh, How about for all mankind? I'll give you some. What? You want you, you want to taste some for all mankind? Ninety percent. Uh, yeah. So I less good than servant. Not, oh, I see. So not as good as servant. That's correct. for all mankind. That's not as good as servant. That's that's the that's it. That's and what we've got. Okay. Just all to right, close everybody. the loop on this, we will click Ted Lasso and ninety four percent. So. It would. What that sounds like to me is at least uh, on the graded curve of Apple TV Plus and Apple Fanboys, extrapolations isn't very good. Because it sounds like they're all like 90s-ish shows. So I guess we have to grade on a curve. I I don't like. I don't have answers for you. The morning show is sixty four percent. I guess. Yeah. I I don't know. That one I didn't get to. I. I I, think, I also think that yeah. it would like what do you what happens when you watch the first episode of Servant and then you give it a ninety one percent and then you never go back to Rotten Tomatoes? Well, then you too could run a TV critics blog. Okay, 
Got right? it. All right. I mean, we should we should try that sometime. Th- that sure sounds like uh, what the assignment is. Uh, so, uh, what about hello? Was it hello world? No. Hello. hello. Nope. That's our that's our website. <laughs> <laughs> hello tomorrow. Hello tomorrow. No. That's the one. Fifty three percent. They're just so fucking random. I I have nothing for you. Don't judge a show by Rotten Tomatoes. I guess. I guess that's. Or don't, I mean, don't watch that's anything the thing. That's like, how do you ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes? And some things that are over ninety percent. Yes, like I. I <laughs> yeah, you're. I think I go with your first recommendation, which is don't use that at all. That that's that's terrible. Like you just can't put servant anywhere close to the orbit of those other shows. You cannot, you can't like, I'm even willing to say that, okay, servant is marginally better than, than extrapolation and, and hello tomorrow. I'm willing to do that, but wherever those are is already too high. So like, that's one, you can't put it in a stone's throw with severance and for all mankind, you can't do that. Like 91%. Like that's not, that's yeah like and again like i think that might be the problem with like people watched the first couple episodes or the first one or maybe even the first season which probably isn't a 91 percent either and and then put their rating in and just haven't gone back for the next three seasons of drek right like they like that's probably what happened there like they would have to be they would have to be uh I don't know. Like I, I just, what would drive the traffic back to Rotten Tomatoes to change your score? I guess is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like what would be the motivational factor that gets you back to Rotten Tomatoes? I don't know, man. People who leave reviews generally are people who either really love something or are really angry about something. I think that's true on Amazon. That's true in life. That's like anywhere you go on Yelp. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I think, people probably would go back. Uh, I think it may just be people abandoned the show so they didn't go back because they had nothing else to come back to. I yeah. mean, when when did the show turn for you? Oh, I, I think it was some. It was somewhere in season two where I was kind of like, I don't know, man, you're just not like actually really telling me anything different than the first season at all. And then we wrapped the second season. I was like, I guess maybe you have some other answer in season three. And then once, once I started season three, I was like, okay, like you're, you're just wasting my time. You're running the clock out and collecting all of Apple's money. And that's, you know, that's a good business decision, but it is not a good use of my time. Um, so, you know, that I, I think it was really once I finally got to the point where like, I, I was mad half watching it and also looking at my phone like that's when i realized i just had to stop like i could just watch my phone in more peace so i i just turned it off and so i don't i don't know i don't know i would say probably around there yeah yeah that that sounds about right i mean my experience with it was just so much based on inertia that i never really got into it mm-hmm. um so or i i didn't turn in the same way. Like I never really was bought in as something great. It was just, well, I'm already here and, you know, didn't want to abandon it or not finish it. Um, 100% critics consensus for season four though. I, I, yeah, I need to just leave the site and never come back. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the, uh, 
Stockholm syndrome there. Like, it's just like, <laughs> like you just, you like, you just got, you got to the point where you have got, you've nodded to your captors and said, thank you for the slice of moldy bread. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, I mean, you know, like that's not, that's not good content. Clearly it's not good content. That's stupid. Yeah. I, okay. I mean, it could just be that by all accounts, M night seems like a very cool guy to hang out with. He does. He does. I like him. And, I like him a lot. You know, the, all of these critics might just be thinking about, you know, the last time they had a beer with the guy and, you know, how much fun they did doing that like hipster mini pin bowling together. Yep. And maybe yep. the reviews and, are about that. And it's not about the show. They just genuinely like M night. Do you think they took him out to Pat's or Gino's? Where, where did they go? Ah, probably Lorenzo's. Uh, Lorenzo's because, you because think? they're locals and Pat's and Gino's are really, you know, tourist traps. Got it. Okay. All right. So they went to yeah. Lorenzo's. I mean, it, it, it was definitely on South Street. It was definitely as local and authentic as possible because that guy bleeds green. I, I've <laughs> never seen him in an Eagles game, but uh, I've also never seen anything filmed. I think the farthest he got was Bucks County for signs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like that, it. that was it. But I mean, and it's authentic. It, it's I mentioned this, I think, when we were watching um, Split, which we'll talk about after the break, but uh, everything he shoots is actually here. And um, Abbott Elementary, which is filmed as a Philadelphia inner city school, is not filmed in Philadelphia at all. And they had an episode at the Philadelphia Zoo that they shot in California and just like shipped in some signs for the Philadelphia Zoo to make it the Philadelphia Zoo. So the signs were authentically Philadelphia Zoo. And they even had a scene in the Philadelphia Zoo's hot air balloon, which is actually a thing that you can see if you're going down the Schuylkill. And it kind of hurts. Like, why not? Like, come shoot here. Like, Philly's awesome. Philly's awesome. And for, yeah, like, and what, like, truly... Truly, like, there's just so many cool on-location things that they could do in a half-hour show that would only be a couple minutes of their time, right? Like, just a little bit of filming. Like, have an on-location. Because if they wanted to do the, with the inside of the school shooting elsewhere, like, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, but like, yeah. But there's for the handful of things that are actually in the city, like, just why would you not have a Philly team to do that? That seems logical. And, and anyway, yeah. Uh, so, yes, in closing... Uh, extrapolation. Don't watch it. Yep. No, uh, I think in 52 episodes, if there's one message we needed to get out there, uh, that's really it. That's it. That's it. So I don't know. Do you want to jump on a quick break and come back and go through some of the things that we might actually recommend? I think that that is a terrific use of our time. See you on the other side. So now we can talk about entertainment. Yes, things that are entertaining, things we have been playing, watching, mostly watching, it looks like, based on our list here. Stuff we watched and, and that, yes? Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I've i done a little bit of watching. I think I was uh, teasing Shadow and Bone. Uh, I'm kind of working through that. Uh, finished uh, Carnival Row uh, Season mm-hmm. 2, which I, of the things I've watched recently, if you did the first season of that, like it's really just... A really pleasant show and feels like a completed thought. It goes where they wanted to without being 
too big for itself at any point. Like it really feels like it's right within the world that it's building. Um, so really enjoyed. I don't think it's a great show. I don't think it's flawless, but I think it it does what it says on the tin and it's never disappointing. Hmm. But, uh, so I did do the first season. Would you say that it holds the quality bar, slightly increases or slightly decreases from season one? Slightly decreases to holds, uh, but I think part of that is you don't get the sense of awe of world building. And so they don't get those bonus points for showing you this world and these creatures and the society that they've built because you're already in it. And mm-hmm. where I think they succeed in season two is expanding that world to show a little more of the conflict coming out of the way they ended season one in kind of like this uh, very like speciesist, racist kind of like tone of like shutting down all the critches and locking them in on Carnival Row um, on the row and showing you some different locales and different city states and places where maybe that's not the case. Mm. That's interesting. Good. Okay, I'll definitely get to that. I I I, uh, I did super enjoy my time with the first season. Um, it it was a little bit self serious sometimes in a way that like it I, I could have de- dealt with just a dose of taking itself a little bit more lightly. But that was my only critique of it. I did love the world building. I did think it was super neat. I love that time period. And then to do this bit of a steampunk, bit of a fantasy thing going on around that time was 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 hella cool. I did like it. So I'll have to do that for sure. Yeah. So I guess before we go, I've got a few that I've gone through here, um, not to dominate this week's list, but I got a few here. So um, let me start with, I figure this way we can kind of go back and forth. I'm going to start with a pair of um, Oscar nominees. Um, I don't remember how much, if any awards were won for these two, but uh, I got to digest Triangle of Sadness and Tar um, were two of the uh, Oscar uh, nominees that I got to uh, experience. Both of um, which, little known fact, alternative show titles for extrapolations. <laughs> very, very, very possible. <laughs> very good. Very good. Very good. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> I, I, I would say, thankfully, that's mostly an inside joke because we don't want anybody to that's watch right. extrapolations. <laughs> Just I, know. I, I dearly hope nobody else ever gets that reference. That's right. <laughs> Um, so Triangle of Sadness is um, another, you know, as is all the rage these days, another one of those kind of um, eat the rich kind of celebrations of, you know, the opulence of people at the upper crust. Um, it is it is very uh, Oscar flavored, I will say. Um, both of these movies, for sure, uh, Oscar flavored movies. Um Triangle of Sadness is like broken up into three acts, if you will. And it, you know, it fades to black and then, you know, puts the, you know, chapter two or act two or whatever it says, you know, to, to, to break up the movie into three uh, blocks. The, the majority of the movie without spoiling it too much for anybody who, who may want to experience it. The majority of the movie is around this rich people's yacht that, um, the, the rich and powerful, uh, are, are attending. They're going on this cruise on this yacht. Um, and all of the kind of classist absurdity that happens. Um, so you get to see there's sort of like a lower deck, 
servants uh, quarters and, and team. There's an upper deck uh, servants quarters and team um, where, you know, the people lower deck, uh, not a lot of them uh, speak fluent English, um, are all dressed in, you know, kind of what looks almost like hospital scrubs, like these dark blue hospital scrubs. And they deal with the very menial stuff, the laundry, the scrubbing, the the floors and the that, right? And then you have your kind of upper crust of, of servants that are uh, running around the with, you know, in much nicer attire. They look like, um, like members of the, like crew members, right. Where they've got, you know, the colors to match, you know, with the white and the black and the, um, and so forth. And, um, and so they, and they are there to more service the, the, the actual, uh, clientele on the yacht, right? Like, so grabbing drinks for them and, uh, you know, getting, you know, the, you know, helping serve food and, and, you know, but they're more kind of like the public facing servants, you know, as opposed to the the others that are not. And then there's of course the, the Uber rich, the, the, the people that are, you know, able to afford this, 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 uh, experience on the yacht. Um, uh, without, you know, getting too deep into it, um, it goes horribly wrong. Um, and, uh, in some ways that are funny, um, in some ways that are absolutely disgusting. The one spoily bit that I'll say is that there is a point in the middle of the movie where, um, through a series of events, the food that is served to everybody is spoiled. Um, and then on top of that, they hit a terrible amount of, uh, choppy waters and in a storm. And so those two things combine to have most of the people that are on the crew, uh, vomiting and shitting themselves all over the place. Um, and it just goes on for a while. It is just a lot of vomit and a lot of feces and it is just everywhere all the time. Uh, so I'm not really sure what the purpose uh i don't know it's a it's it's sort of a it, it was just a strange thing to do um i i felt like they spent so much time grossing the audience out in this like almost like jackass kind of way like it was it was a weird weird piece that went on for several several minutes just very gross i mean just like turning your head gross at some point like it's just like so much of that stuff going on that like i guess they're just trying to show how they want to be able to punish all these rich people and then it only gets worse from there and the and anyway so it it tries to wrap itself at the end where you know they've gone through a whole lot more tragedy than just that um and then ends in this very weird indie sort of non-ending way um I don't know that the commentary really like landed for me in that movie at all. Um, the one saving grace, uh, Woody Harrelson is the captain of the ship. Okay. Um, he, he is a complete drunk and uh, he really only comes out for a small period of time. Um, but his part in particular is, is pretty great. He, he does, he does wonderful with, with the work, with, with the, with his work and the, and the material he was given. Um, but notwithstanding that, I, I, I'm not going to recommend it at all. I, I'm not really sure outside of it being an Oscar flavored type of movie. I don't know why this got nominated. There's just far better movies than that. I mean, it sounds like Avenue five, but not funny. Yeah, maybe that. There you go. That's true. I think I only did the first episode or two of that. That's the one with the house on it, right? With, um, yep. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, very fun part of that though is that he speaks both in american and his native british tongues 
Um, So like he kind of jumps back and forth because early on nobody knows he's British and he's supposed to be this big American captain. And so anyway, he goes into private, you know, he slips back into his accent, which is great because I don't know about you, but anytime I see any one of these British actors who are not doing a British accent, um, uh, what's her face from The Last of Us? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, like yep. when she pipes up, uh, I'm just—it's uncomfortable. I I it need is. her to speak American and to mm-hmm. continue to speaking American. That's um, right. So like the house gag, like living with him on house for how many seasons, and then you hear him in an interview, and you're like, "Stop doing that accent! What are you joking around about?" <laughs> yes. So yeah, um, yeah no, that's a fun show, uh, but it's—I uh, mean, it is like this opulent space yacht with very rich people who get into all kinds of very unfortunate hijinks, a little bit of office flavored, you know, kind of stuff and some office people in it. But like what you're describing sounds like, especially the projectile vomiting scene, like they almost wanted it to be slapstick or somebody maybe when they were at least storyboarding thought that it was going to be funnier than it was. And then one of their producers called them up and said, no, this is coming out in Oscar season. And everybody That's had to it. take their shit like way more seriously. Yes. The literal shit. Way right, more it seriously. Sounds like yes. a, a humorous premise that they're playing with yeah. and then just not and not horror and very serious and... I yeah, know. That's, that's really what it was. There And there were parts of it that really... That that worked from a humor perspective. There's a character who um, she was involved in some kind of accident. And so she um, was paralyzed from the waist down, I think. And also she could understand words, but she couldn't verbalize anything other than exactly one German phrase. And it was the German words for to the clouds. And so she was kind of like like a Pikachu, like she could only say that one phrase, but she kept using lots of different ways of emoting during that phrase. And you would just hear her in the background sometimes. And so like that gag worked incredibly well. So it feels like they were trying for some comedy somewhere, um, but just, so, and like those parts were funny. There are parts of it that work. It's just, there's so much of it that doesn't by the end of it. I, I don't know. It's a tough recommend. I don't want to, I've certainly seen worse stuff, but I, 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 I think it was, um, God, it was more just that, like, uh, out of all the, you know, dozens or hundreds of movies that you could ingest in a year, right? Like, it has to be narrowed down to a very select few to be Oscar worthy, right, right? For the Academy Awards. And I don't know, man. Like, that is just like, there's, it's just mystifying to me, other than, you know, like, I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I continue to go back to this. I know Succession comes back for its final season on Sunday. And there's this, you know, there's this fascination, this, this uh, almost perverse fascination with people that, you know, have PJ and whirly birds and stuff and and it's just a just a weird thing like because i feel like every time any of these shows tries to say oh hey look at us we're 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 we really hate the rich too right like i I feel like it's like it's very disingenuous because it's like well first of all all the people that are making this are fucking rich and secondly like you're kind of making this sort of like extra tier of of ridiculousness that you don't achieve so that you can kind of feel better about your 
other version of richness <laughs> that's still way more opulent than it should be. It's just not this level of absurdity so that you feel better, better about yourself. Maybe. I don't know. I feel like it's like, it's a weird sort of like, uh, it, it's, it's doubling back on itself in a gross way societally. I don't, I don't think that it does what they think it does. I think it's transparent to me. Um, but, but anyway, it's, it's just another one of those movies where I'm just watching a bunch of opulent people do a bunch of opulent things and them having a bad day out at sea and, believe me it gets bad but like is not enough to not celebrate being rich and awesome right like it still it still ends up ultimately being that to me um so anyway but you know whatever i mean again it's been a lot worse movies than that it's certainly worth having on in the background with your with your phone if you you know want to you know experience another oscar movie but I don't know. It's uh, it, it, there's nothing particularly redeemable about it. So was there a performance in it? I mean, when we talk about Oscars, like, is there a reason why this wasn't just kind of like a sort of not very good uh, movie that was, you know, a little confused about whether it was a thriller or comedy? Like, was it like, was there a breakout performance or a message or some sort of takeaway without Boiling, I guess, but uh, I mean, can you see why somebody would have said there is some shit there, even if it didn't all work? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it starts with the act one is really about a pair of the of the people that end up being on this cruise, this uh, uh, younger uh, pair of models. There's a woman and a man that that are, you know, have to be in their early 20s. I mean, they're super young and they're like Instagram models. And so they're kind of you know, and there's a there's a very protracted act one where it's mostly just the two of them and their modeling life and then them being in a relationship, but the weirdness and the vapidness about their relationship and they spend a lot of time on that and there's very long scenes with them kind of going back and forth in ways that are I don't know, not really all that important or interesting, but I could see the flavor again. It's like, it's like Oscar flavor. It's not really like Oscar worthy. It's like, this is the kind of movie. This is the kind of trappings that an Oscar movie would have. It's very, um, uh, stuffy in, in how it, uh, even in its comedy, right? Like Oscar worthy comedies, you know, with big air quotes around that always have a certain stuffiness around them and a certain like messaginess around them. And I don't know that. And, and so this had that flavor. It was wearing those clothes. I just don't know that I really came away from like, I don't know what you were trying to tell me. Like, especially when you get to the third act and you realize what they're doing at the end. Like, you're kind of like, I don't know. I don't know what the message was because you really couldn't have continued that from the beginning to the end. And and so it's sort of, you know, it, it mostly I think if I had to draw a line through all of it, it's talking about, you know, the, 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 the class system of the, of the world and, and do people that are rich ever really learn or change or anything, or are they always the same people, no matter their circumstance? Um, so maybe that, maybe that, I don't know, like uh, if I had to draw something through, I, I, that seems like a weird thing to hang an Oscar on. And um, I think it bore itself out that I don't think it really won much of anything. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so that was that. My other Oscar movie was Tar. Um, so I, I, this is about um, Lydia Tar. I think based on the real world uh, composer uh, Linda Tar. Um, and I, I, I think there's a whole bunch of similarities drawn between those characters. I mean, obviously for for you know not just the name, but a lot of you know what was going on with that particular person. Um, 
I would say this is one kind of like Daisy Jones and the Six where I think like... I think people who have been around music and the experience of creating music and being involved in that, in the the trappings of like with Daisy Jones and the six, uh, that's a lot about, you know, bands and trying to make it and recording your albums and all that a little bit more kind of grassrootsy type stuff. Tar is much more. um, She's like, you know, this, this super amazing composer um, worked herself all the way up through a whole mess of awards and things that she did and uh, ascended uh, to be, you know, one of the uh, premier women in, 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 uh, in the, uh, in classical music and, and, and in the realm of composers. Um, uh, I think the craft here is incredible. It's, it's very beautiful movie it's like like a lot of the scenes have a lot of crispness to it a lot of sharpness to it um it's a little bit clinical in that way but there is a lot of like really beautiful i mean it's a lot of a lot of it's filmed in berlin so there's a lot of wonderful architecture and and capturing that in the lens seemed to be important there um this is also a movie with a lot of rich people in it so like seeing her apartment is just like this outstanding like loft with you know it looks like something ripped out of control of the video game like it's like like the brutalist architecture like it's very like stark like cement walls everywhere and you know like incredible modern sculptures and stuff and you know listening rooms and you know like just very you know like super expensive um uh it's interesting i didn't really pull this out of the movie necessarily initially um uh, I will say that the pretentiousness of this movie is high. Um, it starts with, uh, so Todd Field is, he wrote, directed, and produced. He did all of the things. So he pulled himself an M. Night here. Um, so he obviously really gives a shit. Um, right. And so when it starts, it is, I haven't seen very many movies like this because this is a dumb fucking thing to do to your audience, but it starts and it's a, all black and it just starts rolling the credits before the movie and it go, you know, and they flash, they don't really roll, but they're like flashing in and flashing out. And it's just, I mean, it's probably a couple of minutes worth of credits like that's going on. And there's just music. There's this like try this, uh, uh, indigenous people, a, tri- a tribe that, uh, Lydia Tarr went to go visit as part of her musical journey. Um, and so it's, it is a it is a a a indigenous song that is delivered okay and uh so during those credits and it's literally just white text on a black background for like a couple of minutes while this song plays in the background it is nothing else there's nothing else to hold your attention there's nothing to divine from any of that it is literally just you know you're just soaking in the moment before the movie starts um in a way that's like almost disrespectful like it's like this isn't really delivering enough content here like i'm super proud of everybody's accomplishments here but there's a reason why the audience just doesn't engage with the credits like that because you know there's just a lot that we wouldn't you know connect with um it then starts with, I guess there's uh, Adam Gopnik. He's a guy from the New Yorker. Um, he actually plays himself in the movie and he does this like at some sort of conservatory somewhere. He does a a, a really smart thing where he, he uh, it's almost like an NPR kind of thing. He, he, he talks 
um, to the audience and he's doing an interview with her on stage. Um, so she, and so when he starts the interview, before he starts the interview, he's talking to the audience, talking about her, her accomplishments, her, everything that she's done, what she's trying to do. And it's like a really cool narrative device. Cause she's also telling the audience what she's about to do, right? Like what she, you know, like what, what she's wanted to do. Um, uh, she's a, she's, she's been able to go through all of, uh, Mahler's symphony and, uh, perform that in, in various settings. And she's done everything except for Mahler's fifth. And so her, her white whale, the final piece that she's going to be doing is she's going to be interpreting Mahler's fifth. And that's like kind of the setting of the movie or like where she's shipping to. And so it's like a perfect way to do that for the audience because he's telling, he's telling his audience that, and by extension telling the audience of the movie, um, it's, I'll say that when I finished it, I don't know that I loved this movie either, but I will say that, uh, it's got definitely a lot more meat on it than triangle of sadness. Um, uh, I, it, <laughs> I would have to, I, I think that it's almost required reading. Um, there's an article, there's several articles actually that I ended up reading afterwards. Um, that one was in, in huge defense of this movie. One was praising it just as a movie and one was completely decrying it as a, as a piece of garbage. Um, and I would tell everybody to read all three of those before they decided to finish the, their thoughts on the movie, because it's such a, it's a strange movie that, um, seems to have elicited a few different perspectives. Um, Lydia Tarr or Linda Tarr, whoever it's really talking about, but let's just talk about the fictional character right. here. Um, I guess was accused of grooming, um, musicians for her for her symphony um and would kind of bring them in um she is a lesbian in this in this movie and she would groom f um females and kind of bring them in and was accused of sexual encounters and relations with them. Uh, and then when she was done with them, she would discard them or fire them and she would discredit them sometimes and take them out of her, you know, out of her social circle and work circle and then swap them in with somebody else. And so I guess this happened several times and it sort of culminates in some not so great business for her. Um, the movie has been accused in at least one of those articles as being an anti-cancel culture movie where it's saying that like cancel culture goes too far and, you know, and, and, you know, there's all these things that are pinned on, on her that shouldn't have been. And, um, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I didn't pull that from my watching of it. Um, but, I, but it's a, but it definitely has more to say. There's definitely some interesting kind of pushbacks, um, in that idea. Um, I, there's a, there's a, um, she's hosting like a, a master's class, um, in, in, uh, in composing, um, and, um, uh, and I think it's a composition class. I, I can't remember exactly, but, um, there's, there's a, there's a class that so she's, she's, she's mastering in a, in a, she's the, the professor during a class, um, uh, in, in a, in a, I believe it's a school over in Berlin and she's, uh, kind of pushing back on the idea that like, so there's a student that said, um, I think he said that it was Bach. I'm pretty sure it was Bach. And he said, well, I don't know how much I can learn from, um, an old white guy. Um, so I don't really listen to Bach. I don't have any thoughts about Bach. And so she makes a really big push back against him saying, right. listen, you know, I understand that. I understand that you might have that perspective, but you know, um, and she, 
calls herself out as, you know, but as, you know, a progressive person, as a lesbian, like I can look at his music and I can pull things out of it because there is something that he can tell from, tell us from his music and his ability to, to interface with the world. So who are you to, to discredit this huge piece of musical history just because you think this guy wasn't as progressive as you are. Right. Um, and I thought that was a super interesting like tact and lots of very thick, heavy dialogue during that period. But it's, but it's well done. It's it's well acted, well done. Uh, Kate Blanchett uh, plays the uh, the title character and um, knocks it out of the park. She does the best work there um, for sure. I could see if if she did win something. I thought she did. Um, fully deserved there, even if the movie was uneven and didn't maybe do everything I would want it to do. Um, but I, I enjoy I enjoyed it. I just think that. Um, <laughs> one of those articles that I read seemed to lend a whole bunch more weirdness and importance to it. And uh, I don't know if I'm on board with that. I think I would temper my expectations going into it, that it felt like that was what was going, that was actually what was happening. Like they seemed to suggest some much bigger stuff going on in the periphery. Um, but anyway, I enjoyed that way more than Tri- Triangle of Sadness. I would say that that is also of the Oscar flavor. It's a slightly different, more um, antiseptic op- uh, Oscar flavor, but it is that. Um, yeah. uh, so anyway, that, that, those are my two kind of yeah. Oscar hits. It sounds like Tar really like fits that Oscar mold a lot better of just being like this big biopic character vehicle for a renowned actor, actress to just push something forward and to a certain extent, the character that is being studied in this character study is is scenery. You know, I mean, it's uh, some trappings that we put on, but it's really about Kate Blanchett and acting. And, yes. you know, we are inside the actor's studio and we're doing acting things, which yes. is like very much that, that mold. Um, obviously, it'll be compared to Whiplash in terms of how enjoyable or unenjoyable music is. And it sounds like this has a slightly more loving Mozart in the jungle kind of relationship at times while still getting a little gritty with the the loneliness of the artist from what it sounds like, that there's a certain isolationism in this drive. I really like that uh, comparison. I didn't immediately think of Whiplash when I'm watching this because Whiplash is very much more down in the in the in the yep. gutter than this movie. But it, but I do see the parallel there for sure. Um, I think Whiplash on balance is a phenomenal movie and a far better movie than this, um, and also has more to tell on the nose than this might have been telling on the periphery. Um, I would for Tar in particular, just because of your background in composition. Um, as Lydia Tarr's, you know, a conductor for all these various orchestras, I, I think the interesting uh, ways in which that is uh, explained to the audience. I would love your um, thoughts around that. Did when you were at UArts, did you have to uh, uh, engage with conducting at any point in time? Yeah, I mean, they taught the basics as sort of a fundamental skill. Some of it was a little optional. Uh, UArts in particular had such a broad collection of people with different, you know, musical backgrounds and interests and very jazz focused. So a lot of the conducting was a little more practical, a little more, you know, pit based, studio based than, you know, orchestral. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I did do toward the end was get into writing um, for small string uh, quartets and quintets and different arrangements. And they had some Orchestral people come over uh, from Curtis uh, to, you know, sight read and had us, you know, kind of conduct and, you know, read through the pieces that we'd done. 
So yeah, I mean, that is, it's a more important part of understanding music than I think a lot of music gets. And I actually, thinking about it, I was really impressed. Uh, my youngest is taking piano lessons uh, and he's going to be uh, seven very soon. So he's, you know, starting relatively young and his piano teacher taught him how to conduct in three, four and four, four. And wow, he cool. came home like really proud that, you know, he had the mo- movements. And I think there is something to that because conducting and keeping time is teaching you where you are in a measure, where you are in a song. It's teaching you to understand the overall the overall map of a piece of music, whether it's just you learning a piece, sight reading, you know, on your instrument, or it's uh, you leading a group or an orchestra. It's not just somebody standing up and saying, you, louder, you, quieter. It really is bringing all of these people together at a very high level, you know, who all have perfectly good internal clocks and you could probably leave the room as an amateur and they would play that symphony right quick. But there is something to conducting because you're becoming the single brain for this network, Mm. you know, and there is always something more emotive about music than just reading notes on a page. And I think sometimes with classical where there isn't improvisation really involved, it's kind of a different art form than rock, jazz, uh, you know, modern uh, contemporary music of, you know, really any genre where it is like, here's the score and this is what we're playing and this is what we're doing. But every one of those people has to infuse emotion into what they're doing. And if everybody just infuses their own emotion into what they're doing, it's going to sound like chaos. We're going to be accenting different things. We're going to be caring about different sections and everybody's going to be loudest at their favorite parts and you know what they think is most important. So that's the art of conducting is bringing all that together and imparting your will on everybody in front of you and sharing your emotional interpretation, which is why great conductors are great artists. Mm, and that is probably as nerdy as I will get in this episode of (laughs) Interscription. Um, Why don't we talk about uh, uh, McAvoy? Let's talk about McAvoy. That's right. That's it. So you got to come visit. Uh, We got to have a lot of pizza. A lot of pizza. Um, Yes. Um, And uh, I can't believe another two things we're going to talk about. It's not the Russian video game, but it's actually. I think we might might also. I I think we might. But I. I, Yeah. I think this is worth talking about because I watched Servant, which, you know, we've talked about. We all have regrets. It's been a year. We've journeyed together and um, four seasons of Servant. And what I learned. You know, I've never really been an M. Night believer. I I would consider myself an M. Night cynic, shymanic, shymectic. No, No. I'll I'll keep coming back to it. We're moving on. It's fine. Um, Yeah, I've enjoyed some of his movies, some of the movies that you've really loved. I've been a little more lukewarm on. Um, Lady in the Water felt okay to me. Like it didn't really hit. The village was like, eh, all right. Uh, one of his other bigger ones, like they were all good movies, but none of them really like impacted me. You know, some of them were very good. Some of them were better, but I never would really 
I, I wasn't a drum beater for him. And the thing that I think I recognized in Servant putting my phone down and watching it is his attention and interest in the craft of filmmaking. You know, like he's really a wonk when it comes right down to it. He loves to set up a shot. He loves tension in his shots, and he does that really very well. Um, Knock in the Cabin, a very small movie, which we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, like it really, it's a stage play, right? Mm. Uh, you know, there's no real effects that are necessary. You know, you have a couple of effects to drive some of the points home, but you don't need them, right? Like no. you could have easily just shot that in a cabin with the actors doing their thing. Like you didn't need yep. anything other than those performances. And he gets to tension almost exclusively with camera work. Mm-hmm. And he does this in Servant too. And like, so watching like the cabin while I was watching Servant, like seeing kind of what his, his gags are. And then sort of thinking back to some of his other movies. One of the things is that like uncomfortably close camera angle where like, we've just got a face and it's just like, can we just, um, can we just kind of like pan it back a little bit? I'm a little too close. <laughs> it's it's a very big screen TV. It is very high def, and we have more room. So let's just, just roll roll, roll the back. dolly back. Yep. Right? yep. I mean, and he does that. I think because it's uncomfortable, and so he'll do <laughs> these dialogue shots where it's a, uh, you know, full face uh, taking up you know seventy five percent of the screen, cutting to the other person talking, and it's not like those natural cuts that you see in most movies where people are in a three quarter frame and you're seeing them in their outfit. It's just like head. Mm -hmm. Um, And checking out split, I guess as I was sort of, you know, wearing in my M night shoes a little bit, uh, you had kind of recommended this as one of the bucket list ones to watch. And uh, I'd said that it really hinges on the main character. Um, I forget McAvoy's first name. I know that it's a McAvoy. James. James McAvoy. uh, That really nobody but him could have done this because this is also a small movie. Mm -hmm. When when you think about it, there's not a lot of action in it. You know, towards the end, you get a little bit of, um, a little bit of effects and a little bit of intrigue, but it's again, a movie that largely takes place in one place, in one mm-hmm. small setting, and it hinges on the way these characters are interacting with each other and their dialogue and their development. And I I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And uh, James McAvoy's performance as a, um, I guess I don't call it multiple personality disorder anymore. It's... DID. Right. A dissociative individual disorder and close to that yeah something around that yeah, Lot, yeah lots of lots of personalities in one brain yep um and his ability to move from one to another really made this movie and i think you know if this had been brad pitt or somebody who is like just a little bit bigger just a little too much of a name and you know way too excited about the chance to play you know 23 people it could have fallen flat on its face uh, with the hamminess of it. And he brought a subtlety to playing these roles. Uh, you know, there's one part in particular where he's talking early on with his psychiatrist as one of these personalities that is itself 
impersonating another personality to not let the psychiatrist know that this personality is the one that's out there. And later you see both of those personalities as naturally as they can be. And the fact that they're played differently and recognizable just in like face twitches and just like basic affect without dialogue choices or accent or any of these other crutches that we might look on. It's really tremendously impressive. Um, Not overdone in terms of twistiness. And it really kind of did exactly what they said on the 10. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some surprising developments that uh, if you're thinking about this strictly as a mental health impairment, uh, you didn't really expect, but um, fun all the way around. I really liked it. You had mentioned um, Glass is the next in this series. Yeah, so that's kind of the thing. I mean, I think at in 2023, we probably get to kind of <laughs> uncap it now that right, you're it's kind a of 2016 old. movie. Like, we can spoil the shit out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's really just the one thing that I got to see this in the theater, and I, I've been blessed to have seen a lot of his movies in the theater. And truly, if you don't want his stuff spoiled, right, like you just get to it early, you know, if you can, or just be on media blackout. And the latter gets harder and harder every year. So um, I got to see this. It's fully great without its twist. I mean, it is, you know, in M. Night fashion, there's a bit of a twist at the end. And the twist here is that this is actually that he has a uh, unbreakable verse. So like he is he is not just it's not just David Dunn from Unbreakable. It's not Mr. Glass from Unbreakable, but now it's also this other character. So he was basically trying to almost build out this superhero league in Philly, right? Like is basically what he was building for um, in a way that, you know, was kind of like, sort of shocking um and worked incredibly well here so um so anyway it was uh it was really kind of neat um i i think we talked a little bit about the the night chronicles uh for him where he he was going to have these like four very small movies uh pulled together um he got to do two and a half of them so the first was devil um and the next was um the visit um and both of which are very good but also extremely small even smaller than knock on the cabin there's short movies small movies um the third was actually split um, but Split wasn't really going to be fit into his larger universe at the time. So Split was really just going to be about this DID uh, character and his therapist and how he, you know, was kind of there. But then he sort of like, as he wrote it, it got much bigger and it got to be a, a bigger product, right? And then the fourth was a movie that he never got to make so far anyway that was uh, kind of like a 12 Angry Men sort of ripoff thing that he was looking to do. So in any case, so Split started small, turned into this movie that continues the mythology of Unbreakable. And so Glass is the third movie there. Next time I have you up, we'll, we'll definitely go through Glass and we'll have some more commentary on that. But yeah, uh, definitely echo that 100%. We talked a bit about it before and after the movie when we watched it. But but this hinges on James McAvoy. It hinges on him. Like It's impossible for this movie to have gotten to the heights it did without some of the best uh character acting slash you know method acting that he was doing in this way like in such a a deep way right like um really embodying those individual personalities in ways that was just perfect there's a part near the end of the movie where there's a bunch of video files on a computer and one of the characters is clicking through them and it's 
it's him acting as each of these individual personalities and getting recorded on a web camera. And you can see, you can tell, right? Like he's not wearing anything differently for the most part, maybe a, a glove here or a hat there. But other than that, like he, it's his acting that's like truly making these other personalities in a, in a stunning way that like are very distinct and very powerfully wrought, all well acted and all, all grounded in a, in a, in the room and in a really cool way. Um, so it's all him. It's all him. I mean, yeah. um, the, uh, Anya Taylor Joy, Anya Joy Taylor, Anya Taylor Joy. Um, that was one of the first times I had seen her. I don't know if she's been in something prior to that, but you know, also she's subsequently been in a whole lot more and done a whole lot more, but um, also turned in a great uh, performance. Betty Buckley being the therapist, she did great. Um, yeah, super interesting. I'll probably, I don't know if it's uh, sitting on my Plex server somewhere. I'll have to send you the link to. There's actually some deleted scenes from this and he doesn't do a lot of deleted scenes. I mean, M. Night is a very deliberate guy, right? Like he he doesn't add a whole bunch and then cut it out later. Like he usually has a pretty specific vision. But there's a whole um, uh, storyline here in Split with the therapist um, and she has um, a love interest in the building where she lives. Um, and it was interesting to actually hear like, and he filmed them actually, he actually had them in, in the movie and he cut them because they were too distracting from the idea of what they were trying to get to. So I'll have to send those to you so that yeah. you can kind of look at them. I thought it was a neat thing that like, it was an interesting thing from a craft perspective because they were good scenes. Um, but you could also see that if they were in here, they would have just weighed the movie down. Right. And so it's like that kind of idea of like understanding your art and realizing I love this scene. I think this is a great scene. Also, this is not serving the movie. I have to get, I have to back it out. You know, like it's, it's probably tough for everybody in that but it's also like when you make the right calls there i think is uh, is impressive yeah no that's uh, that seems to be what i'm taking away from him and i think uh, what i'm running into more and more as i think back to like where i've been lukewarm on some of his stuff is sometimes his stories aren't hitting but his craft always does mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know and i think uh, at least uh early on in his career, he was being tasked, you know, he did, you know, Unbreakable, he did Sixth Sense. And so everybody said, okay, write, direct, produce, like just do your own thing. And he probably would have been well served by having a writer, by doing Knock in the Cabin, by doing other people's stuff that is an avatar and uh, like just having something else to work with and mold and do the things that he's really superior at rather than also being saddled with come up with another great twisty movie, come up with another great idea and, you know, to just dig down and say, great. Uh, on the other hand, you've got um, the guy who did, oh man, I have not had enough coffee, superhero, first person, camera, kids, really wonderful. Then he got handed X-Men and it blew moose chunks, not X-Men, Fantastic Four and it blew moose chunks. Oh, uh, Chronicle. Um, Chronicle, with, uh, right? Like, yeah. so Josh Trank, like, yeah. That can also blow up in your face. Uh, like, sure. I think he seems to be at his best when he's doing intimacy and tension. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think I've turned around. I am a fan. I am willing to, you know, maybe revisit some of those M Nights that I've seen before with that appreciation. Yeah, um, yeah. Enough yammering movies. I know we're running late. I do absolutely want to talk about Atomic Heart. Yes, let's do that. Because we're not allowed to. Um, I don't think we have the scope or the time to get into all of the uh, 
political compromat, to use a word from our uh, comrades. <laughs> compromat. Very good. Um, Very good. Very good. Yeah. So we fired this up thinking that we'd kind of chew through a game while we were up there. A little bigger. I mean, it really is like Russian Fallout or... No, it is Russian Deus Ex-ish. Russian Bioshock? Russian Bioshock. Yeah, I guess, you know, I'm th- every time I think about it, it's really quite linear, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It, and just like with Bioshock, how there was like areas where you could go to where there's a little bit of freedom, like they're mostly kind of moving you along. Like there's not a whole lot of backtracking so far. Maybe they change that as the game goes, but yeah, so far. Yeah, so I think that's like... Um, what a gorgeously rendered game though. I mean, very Mm. much like Bioshock, it's so much a ride on rails where they've got you walking through the cinematic. It reminded me a lot of Bioshock Infinite with its opening scenes and just painting this picture of a communist utopia that has just risen to great scientific achievement. Um, so... I guess we're not supposed to buy it. Hmm. I was told that. Yeah, something. Uh, got a bit of the the Technorati out there has uh, um, said some things about how. So I guess uh, it is Mundfish, maybe? My Mundfish developer. Mundfish. Yes, Mundfish. Uh, M-U-N-D, Mundfish um, is the developer. I guess based uh, in Russia. Um, and there is some, uh, I guess there is, um, some, some information that, uh, I don't think has been fully vetted, but, uh, I, I, I have vetted it. So that's why I'm going to say that. I don't know. I don't know how much of it has been vetted, um, up until now, but that, um, the funding for the game and as is maybe somewhat typical for, you know, this being a Russian studio, um, came from the government. Um, and as such, uh, by buying the game or downloading it on game pass, cause it's available on game pass, um, may have the knock on effect of, of funneling money back into Russia. Um, and with the war in Ukraine right now, um, that, that is, uh, that that's a, you know, obviously a, a concern, um, a potentially moral concern at the very least. Um, and so I guess you and I kind of shoot on this a little bit and I, I don't, we've, we talked a little bit about, and I, you know, maybe at the very end of a podcast is not a perfect time to get su- super crazy political, yeah. but one of the ways that, you know, America has, has helped, you know, kind of, uh, stay Putin's hand when it comes to, you know, the, the war in Russia is via sanctions, um, which is just actually like dropping, dropping a wall down and blocking transactions of a financial type to go in or out of Russia. Um, and as such, you know, dries up the economy, makes it impossible for them to, you know, press more bullets and therefore, uh, invade other countries. Um, and so, the fact that you can just openly buy this game on all of the stores and everything um, would fly in the face of those sanctions. So it seems like that may not necessarily be a problem and therefore may not be a moral dilemma. Um, but 
I don't know how much deeper to get into that part of the conf- uh, the controversy. I do think it's probably for another pod, but it is something to kind of chew on, like whether or not we have uh, that moral obligation to start digging deeper, even though we believe that our government has already sort of helped us with that moral decision by putting sanctions in the first place. Um, yeah. So it's kind of tough there. So, you know, having said that, and really just speaking about this game on the merits of it being a game and not really where it was developed and where the money's going and all that piece. Um, I, uh, I agree with you. This is very much a Bioshock style game. Um, it doesn't seem very open worldish. Uh, it does speak to an alternate history where was this around the 1950s, I guess is what they're trying to yeah, hint at 50, 60s to, you know, Soviet expansionism. It looked like they, the key element that they kind of hint to is that the Russians won the war, you know, and had like more credit for that. Obviously they were our allies um, in world war two. And then we kind of carved everybody up post-war, but they had a slightly different timeline. Um, and I suspect uh, that it's, we never dropped a nuclear bomb because I think it had like 1952 was like the end of the war or 1949. Like it was later then World War II ended. And mm-hmm. so it may have been that like it shifted and Russia had more perhaps Project Paperclip than we did and, mm-hmm. you know, took some of the spoils of war. But uh, that seemed to be kind of the trend or the idea. And it paints that picture that, you know, if it wasn't American exceptionalism and communism had actually worked, uh, you would have had this kind of progress in this very short period of time. Um, just kind of reverse hockey stick going all the way up the chart in terms of technological ingenuity. So we've got robots for days and the opening scene as you're like walking through this town, it's just like a celebration of robots. And um, one of the first robots we ran into like literally is just got a needle for a head. It's just a, a stabby thing. And they're all very peaceful. Like, hi, we are just here to help you. And you're walking by these robots like, what possible utility could you have except for me to have to kill you later so you don't kill me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're just murder bots. They're all murder they're bots. Every last one of them. They're just nice. Right? Like it, the, somebody just like painted a smiley face on them to make them less murdery, but they are. They're murder bots. Um, really good creature design though. Uh, you know, the humanoid ones have a very good zombie-like feel as kind of like those grunts that you're going to have to fight a lot and makes the hand-to-hand combat very fulfilling. Uh, And then you've got some of the weirdos that are also like environmental or puzzle hazards. You you get into this warehouse selection section and some of these robots are just having the time of their life, just spinning around and the forklifts are running around, having fun, doing their thing. And so not everything is a problem that you've got to fight. Some of it is a problem that you've just got to get around. Um, But I super appreciate that. Um, it's a very horny game. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. There's, they... there's some stuff. <laughs> I don't remember what was happening, but there was a cutscene or something and we were playing it and your son walked in and said, I'm out. <laughs> and he yep. just turned right <laughs> he around. Did. <laughs> he did. It was seconds. so perfect. Uh, it was so perfect. Yeah. There was just, yeah, whatever. It was some robotic fridge. Oh, it was fridge. the upgrade fridge. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah like the first the, time you meet it, it is just like, hey, hey. There's kids in the next room. Shut up. Shut up. Just uh, what do you want? Uh, I'll, I'll put the Coke back. It's fine. Just just stop talking. 
Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's designed to upgrade your your powers and whatever. And boy, the dialogue on that thing, it is yeah, horny is just scratching the surface. <laughs> it is it is very it is very forward um, about its uh, interest in you as a player. Um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was a little bit too much, a little bit too much um, to the point that it's like almost cringy. Like it's not even like the the gag is off, and it's just like kind of like Ugh, all right, already that's that's enough, everybody. I got it. Yes, horny robots. We got it. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it is something. It is a bit of a horny game for sure. Um, <clears throat> barring that particular interaction, of which unfortunately there's a few, um, it seems like the rest of it's more tame. So, yeah, it's, it, it's just got, it's punctuated with more horny moments than it is actually necessarily a particularly horny game. But, um, but, uh, anyway, I, I think, uh, the craft of this game is, is outstanding. I, there's, um, uh, very fallout like um, there's whenever you go to do the upgrade of your skills, there's these little uh, Soviet era cartoons that are drawn um, that just, you can play them full screen. We found and um, are just lavishly produced, almost like cuphead level, you know, style animation, like very, very, very beautifully drawn. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's got this great blend of, you know, what fallout would do and, and, and in terms of like with the little pit boy guy and stuff, you know, and these really cool animations. So, um, really, really awesome stuff. Like the, the amount of, of craft here on display is, is quite impressive. Um, I don't know that, uh, of anything else that Mundfish has done. Um, but, uh, but this, this release is, uh, is a gorgeous game. Um, really cool alternate science sci-fi world that they built. Uh, um, so yeah, I'm excited to get back to it. I figured we'll, we'll put it on ice until you come back up and we'll, we'll, we'll play a little bit more through and see, see how, how deep into it we can get, but, but really neat. I, I really, really, uh, I think it's a, it's a very impressive, uh, outing, uh, from a developer that I hadn't heard, heard much, much, yeah, much and from. It's, it's fresh, right? I mean, doesn't it, kind of underscore how starved we are for fresh ideas and fresh content. Like, even though it's derivative, like they really fucking like Bioshock, uh, like they really like Bioshock. And I mean, they have the same art deco paranoid future retro of like, I mean, that's it. Like the only thing that's not Bioshock is that it isn't underwater yet. Right. Yes, not yet. Um, yes. But I mean, you've got like the the sludgy stuff that you swim through. So there's that, and it always says weird things to you, like the end of Infinite. So that's true. That's true. But even there, like, and I love Bioshock, so I'm kind of okay with that. But it's still it's a fresh take, and in some ways, what's interesting is when you look at history, Bioshock takes the idea of individual exceptionalism and capitalism to the extreme of what would have happened, you know, if Ayn Rand won, you know, like if everybody mm. just got into the virtue of selfishness and built this ideal paradise for the rich and, you know, capitalism reigned. And this is the opposite of that. What if communism won, you know, each according to his, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, I think is the Marxist motto where, you know, mm. we're just going to, Everybody's going to have the universal guaranteed wage and some of these, uh, you know, leftist concepts because that is the extremes, right? You have fascism all the way to the right and, you know, we only care about each other and by using, you know, our own destiny, the strongest of us will survive. And, you know, Nazism is an extreme form of fascism that says, you know, if you're 
a weight on the state. You don't get to exist, and we're just going to keep the strongest and the best and prop us up. And communism is all the way to the left, where it's everybody gets a loaf of bread. We're just going to take everything. Nobody has personal ownership, and you know it's the ant colony versus the apex predator, really. And mm. both are great survival, you know schemas uh, both the species have survived for millions and millions of years um but they're kind of politically opposed and what i think is cool is if you look at those games and you look at that kind of fiction they both end up at exactly the same place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you almost realize that this utopian ideal turns these political ideologies that are 180 degrees away from each other into a circle That if you just keep going past that extreme left or that extreme right, you loop back back around into populism, turn a left at Starbucks and stop off at Wawa and you're right back at the same place. And so as a political nerd who finds himself often caught between where we were born, where I've come, like all these different things and always beating that drum of let's just sit down and talk to each other and see what's going Mm -hmm. on. It sort of speaks to that idea that we all have the same dreams, that we're all trying to get to the same place, uh, no matter how differently we see the world or how differently we think we need to get there. Um, That's probably way more philosophical than a game about a refrigerator that wants to fuck you should be. But here we are. And yet here we are. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, it, uh, it is, uh, it is, it is so cool. And some of, uh, just speaking about some of the, the, the points that you're bringing there, like, I really like that idea of, um, that just, I mean, obviously, you know, we're not, we need conflict, which means that whether you went far right or far left, things went horribly wrong. And that's, you know, how we had a video game out of it. Right. But I do enjoy that throughout that and sometimes in the intros of the games and sometimes through you know you know uh recordings and 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 things that you find along the way post apocalypse of of the idea of what happened that you get to see why it was right for a time right like i think that's what's really cool about that right so whether it's the far right or the far left uh, ideal of these these ideas that these games are exploring they don't just say yeah it all went to shit so you shouldn't even think about it it they actually take the time to to really kind of talk about why it worked for a little while you know what i mean right. like why why people would give a shit about this idea well even though it ended poorly it, it 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 does it does take a bold stance on the idea that it started well you know and that and that it was it wasn't completely flawed it just couldn't sustain itself right and that like that's a really cool idea uh, and that i think that these games do do address in a in an interactive way in the way that games do you know they they let you kind of explore those ideas a little bit um as linear as the narratives are at least that you know you get to kind of unpack that in your own in your own way and at your own speed so yeah um really neat stuff though and, and from a game it plays really well yeah. i thought i thought it runs really well um very very beautiful it is i'm pretty sure I don't want to be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it's a next gen only title. I don't think it actually runs on previous gen consoles. Um, I, I wouldn't try. 
Yeah, uh, if it does, yeah, because even then we were found a couple loading times were a little long, and a couple of the, you know, things looked like it could really struggle at at at, yeah, at pace on frame rate. So, uh, yeah, but cool stuff. I'm excited to get back into it and dig a little bit more into it, see where it goes. Yeah, um, I know we have kind of hit our ninety-ish minute mark. Um, so once again, and I definitely want to say this since this is our one-year anniversary. One uh, want to be more disciplined in chopping these up and hitting some news, uh, some interesting developments with the, it looks like Microsoft Activision, which we come back to is inching away from Sony complaining about them and more into, uh, regulators talking about constructive things to do to make this deal work. Uh, so it's looking, you know, where I think it was a little, little edgy for a little while, it's looking like this deal is probably going to happen in some way. And I think probably with that kind of constructive input, it may be better for everybody. Uh, Microsoft has announced that they're launching a mobile game store next year um, to compete with Apple's inbuilt and Google's inbuilt stores. And that's kind of fucking interesting, man, because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this was Epic lost their suit on trying to do this. Mm-hmm. with Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, Microsoft has, I don't want to say more expensive lawyers, but they definitely have more more expensive mm-hmm. lawyers mm-hmm. than Epic, and Epic's no slouch. Right. And as far as Titanic companies that can actually drill in, and let me tell you something about Monopoly's son, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like they've been through this. They, they know what happens when you lock a browser to your operating system. And so I feel like they're probably pretty schooled on this. Sure. And I feel like that's going to crack some windows. So I'm looking forward to following that. Don't really want to do another 30 minutes on it or what it means. I think things are going to start churning pretty quickly. And so by next week, we'll probably have even more on this deal and what it's actually going to look like. Yeah, and and just to kind of relate those two things about the the Activision Blizzard deal with Microsoft and then the game store for next year, Microsoft has maintained that the biggest reason to purchase Activision Blizzard is because that one of their assets is King, who makes Candy Crush, and so Microsoft wants a lot of chops in the mobile space. You know, they want to be able to have Call of Duty Mobile and Candy Crush as like these premier experiences, and if those can actually be locked into the Microsoft mobile store that they're trying to build, that'll be a huge boon for people just downloading it. Same way that Fortnite tied itself to the Epic Game Store, right? Like, I mean, it's a it's a great it's a great anchor, right? Like, it's a great great way to to pull everybody into the orbit of a store that they probably wouldn't download otherwise. Um, so, if those you know, if 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 that if those products can turn into a store that they can then ship on these platforms, that'll be uh, that'll be something. But yeah, absolutely, more to unpack about it next yeah. next year, next week, next year, next week, um, and also next year. Who knows? <laughs> we don't know how long all of this uh, all this yammering on That's at exactly right. is going to take. It could be next year. Uh, it's going to be one of the two. Um, but yeah, uh, tune in and hopefully by the time this is dropping, there will be more than a hello world on our website. Uh, if you know, only the feed set up with our episodes and a prettier hello world, but it's going to be something we're going to get there. We recovered mm-hmm. interscription last night from what I recall, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. on Twitter and we're rolling. We're rolling. We're rolling. We will see you on the internet, everybody. See you then.